Hello and welcome to the Broadway Binge Podcast. I'm Jeremy. And I'm Hannah. And we are going to tell you the history of American musical theater by reviewing and ranking all of the most important musicals from Showboat to today. Uh, today's episode is about South Pacific, composed by Richard Rogers, lyrics by Oscar Hammerstein II, and book by Hammerstein and Joshua Logan, who also directed the show. I think. I'm going to double check that while Hannah talks. Woo! Well, okay, so what's special about today's episode is we are in uh, my room, which is in the uh, lovely city of brotherly love, Philadelphia. Um, I believe our last episode was recorded in New York City, center of the universe. Um, That's a musical we'll get to later. Um, but anyway, we're in Philly, and it's great to have Jeremy here with me. Yeah, it's great to be here. <laughs> um, this uh, It's a really nice recording space. Um, oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And, yeah, so, quick, <laughs> I'm pretty sure the, the director is uh, Joshua Logan. And if not, we'll get dragged on the internet. Yeah, we're, um, Hannah, so we got a review on the great. internet. Yeah, this we is... want to start with uh, the, the Dirty Laundry, I think. Yeah, um, so I just Googled Broadway Bins to see what would happen if you Google Broadway Bins. <laughs> Luckily, like, our website and some, like, feeds and things are the mm-hmm. first results. So, like, if you Google Broadway Bins, you will find us. That is good to know. But one of the top results was someone posted about Broadway Binge on... <laughs> On a forum called Broadway World, and this is great because it means people who don't know us personally are discovering the show and talking about it on the internet. Seemingly a really good sign. Um, So a person by the name of Broadway Man 5 posted this uh, comment on October 22nd of 2017. (laughs) Hannah, would you like to read? I would love nothing more, Jeremy. All right, you ready? Yes. Has anyone listened to this podcast? It's a cool idea, but I find the hosts infuriating. Are they just Broadway fans who decide to start a podcast? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I only listen to the Anything Goes and Oklahoma ones so far, but they're just not all that informed. The male host called the 2011 revival of Anything Goes number the best production number in Broadway history. Well, can, so- I butt in? can I butt <laughs> yeah, in? Okay, I, I, this is to defend myself. Okay, look. If you could somehow <laughs> quantify objectively what the best Broadway production numbers of all time were and like make an objective ranking, and then you like held a gun to my head and are like, is the Anything Goes 2011 number like the top number of all time, if you answer, like, yes or no, and if you answer wrong, you will die, of course I'm going to say no, it's not the best Broadway number of all time. I'm making a hyperbolic statement that it's a stronger choice on a podcast than, like, a weak, <laughs> tepid statement, like, this was good. Like, you know what, I think this was one of the best production numbers, like, from an old revival in that premiered in the year 2012. Like, no, I'm here to make strong, bold statements. I feel that you don't need to justify yourself here, Jeremy. Okay, so, like, I'm think, sorry. I like, don't think we have to justify ourselves to uh, Broadway Man 5. Okay, we'll continue. Yeah. Okay, continue. so... So um, that was a statement that he made, and then he said, And they're so scattered, seemingly no preparation put in, just scattered thoughts and takes, including the female host thinking pretty much everything is sexual imagery. I think he's upset about my read on Oklahoma. Um, I think I said that the opening image of Oklahoma, uh, when the ant is turning butter... Um, I think I said it was a sexual image. Yeah, which, like, I totally think Hannah's incorrect there. But again, like, I applaud her for, like, really going for it. She's not holding back. I do think that uh, play is about, um, or that musical is about um, a woman who's afraid of sex. But, um, you know, again, I think I'm here to, um, you know, heighten the conversation. And um, I feel great about that take, and I refuse to apologize. Um, Let's finish it. Let's finish it. So then he goes on to say... um, There is an occasional good insight, but mostly it just seems like not a great representation of an informed discussion on musicals, which frustrates me. Um, Yeah, I mean, Broadway Man 5, I don't know, who's the real loser here? You listen to two hours of our podcast. (laughs) I don't understand. And and you know what, like, yeah, we're not experts, we are just two randos, but there's like, there's like nine million podcasts in the world, and there's like a bunch, like every possible topic you can think of, there's a bunch of podcasts on it, except this one. 
No one is doing podcast. No one hey, has a podcast yeah. about old musicals. We're it. Like also, we're. We know things. I don't think we're two randos. I make theater for a, a living. You do I make mean, theater for a living. Yeah. And, we're, and also, we're not going to justify ourselves to every piece of yeah, criticism. We just we, we were actually. Future. I'm going to be honest. I was excited. I oh, feel yeah, this like is great. I feel like um, this means we've made it. I don't this think we really made it until someone's uh, raked you on the internet. So. Yeah, this is the best thing that's ever happened. Yeah, to uh, Jeremy texted me and I said, "Oh my god, I'm obsessed with this." So, yeah, right. um, I texted you in excitement, like, yes. "Oh my god, we're famous <laughs> enough that we have haters." Yeah, um, I think it's great. Um, so if you're listening, Bravo Man Five, um, thank you, and uh, we hope to. Yeah, and and like you know what, like we are just fans. This isn't like NPR. This isn't like one of those like serial podcasts where like they play music in the background <laughs> and like splice together interviews. Like th- some people only listen to that kind of podcast. There's also the whole genre of podcast where it's just two random fans of something just mm-hmm. talk. That's like a big genre of podcast. Listen to the early Gilmore guys before they got good. Listen to the Rex Factor podcast where they rank the kings and queens of England, which this is like actually totally based on. I don't know what you mean about this, Hannah. <laughs> I don't, but we I'm just, learning. We just stole the Rex Factor format. So, like, this is a thing, and, like, if that's not your cup of tea, like, I'm sorry. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely sorry that we couldn't give you what you wanted, but this is, this is what we have to offer, and there is currently no other podcast offering this, so, like, this is it. Okay. Okay. Well, we we spent too much time justifying something that didn't need to be didn't justified. Didn't need to be justified, but that's fine. Um, okay. That's fine. We're millennials. Okay. That's what we're programmed to do. Okay. Yes. So anyway, um, that was a fun opening, and now on to South Pacific. <laughs> um, yes. So South Pacific, um, Hannah will have more to say about her relationship with it, <laughs> but I actually had never seen South Pacific. My parents had never shown me the movie, and I'd never seen a stage version, because there hadn't really been like a stage version in any of my like middle schools or high schools or anything like that. So I did, had no familiarity with it until I watched the movie a couple weeks ago for a Broadway binge, and I was shocked to discover that unlike Carousel, the other Rodgers and Hammerstein show I hadn't seen that I then watched and realized, like, oh, this is why my parents didn't show it to me because right. it's the worst. I watched South Pacific for the first time and realized, oh my god, this is really good. This is like, this is much, I view South Pacific as much more on par with The King and I and Sound of Music as like late Rodgers and Hammerstein amazing shows Unlike the sort of carousel Oklahoma era of Rodgers and Hammerstein, (laughs) which I don't think is as complex and good. So Okay, yep. mm -hmm, Interesting. This is a great new discovery for me. Mm -hmm, How mm -hmm. about you? Well, so my relationship to South Pacific is, um, it was, I guess, technically not the first musical I was ever in, but sort of the first big musical I was in, by which I mean that in the third grade, I was cast in the high school production of South Pacific to play um, one of Emile's children um, coming soon um, on this podcast of all the ways in which that's, you know, just not chilling. Um, and we'll talk a lot about the sort of the complicated casting, I guess, tied up in South Pacific and uh, the ways it takes on race. But um, I have a very intimate relationship with the show uh, for that reason, because I was in it as a young child in my formulative years, and so I still know the Ditemois pour quoi song. Should we sing it right now? Ditemois. Can we sing in a high voice? Ditemois pour quoi la vie est bella. Okay. okay. I wanted to sing that with you. That was great. That was um, really special. Okay. So yeah, um, we're both coming at it, I guess, uh, from those angles. Yeah, so, I mean, it, it's interesting. There's sort of... Um, one thing I would like to research, and maybe I'll figure it out later, and uh, we can get back to you on that. I'm interested in the orchestration of it, because it just sounded... Like, the orchestra... It's not just the melodies. Yeah, it's The gorgeous. orchestrations sound lush and it's filled so out and complex in a way that I... When I listened to it, I was like, oh, this is very obviously by the same people who wrote The King and I mm-hmm. and Sound of Music. There's sort of, like, a darkness, like, sort of, like, interesting, like, cello parts, like, playing yeah. behind 
the vocal. And we'll play some of the songs for you later. They reminded me a lot of King and I. So it's, it's sort of like these shows that I've known since I was a very small child. It's like discovering like a secret lost musical mm. of that same caliber. And all the other shows we talked about on Broadway Binge so far, I sort of like watch the movie. I look at them academically as sort of as an academic exercise. And it's like, okay, I don't need to listen to Porgy and Bessie and I'm done with it. Right. Whereas this, sometimes at work, I'll be doing very tedious like doc review kind of tasks that like don't require like my actual brain so I can listen to music <laughs> while I do them. And I find myself listening to the soundtrack of South Pacific. Like, Interesting. In work, like, just, like, what am I going to listen to? I could listen to, like, my favorite pop music. Mm-hmm. I could listen to Hamilton. Mm-hmm. I find myself listening to South Pacific. Yeah, I love that for you, Jeremy. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I do agree with what you're saying about it, it being really lush. Yeah, it's more orchestral. I mean, like, there are some really orchestral moments in Oklahoma. Like, some of those dream sequences come to mind. But um, I feel like South Pacific sort of, like, just expands on that in a really lovely way. Um yeah. Let's let's do like little history notes right, and then right. we'll do- so basically um if you don't know South Pacific is about the American uh soldiers who went to fight in the Pacific theater mm-hmm. of World War II. Um specifically it's about the Seabees. The Seabees were basically like an engineering corps. They would go to these islands ahead of the the navy and the marines and they would build uh sort of ports and infrastructure that the air force and the navy and the marines could use to set up in the island hopping campaign. So this mostly centers around a group of CBs who were sort of just set up on this island. They refer to the residents of the island as Tonkinese, although I think in real life they were Vietnamese transplants who were working on plantations there um, in the place that's currently called Vanuatu. But anyway, um, there was a guy, uh, James A. Michener. He was a Quaker and did not have to fight in the military because of his Quaker faith, but he decided to go and write a history and sort of like write about... Um, the army and uh, the campaign that he saw in the Pacific. So he took a bunch of notes, like learned a bunch of stories from people, and then ended up writing a collection of short stories called Tales of the South Pacific, which won the Pulitzer Prize. It was a big hit. Sort of, it won the Pulitzer Prize for fiction. He sort of took these real stories and fictionalized them to make them into sort of like short stories with plots. Mm-hmm. But they're all kind of loosely based on true stories. And the musical South Pacific... Um, it was given to Rogers and Hammerstein. Uh, Hammerstein. Rogers wasn't sure if it was Hammerstein really liked the idea, convinced Rogers, and they decided to make a musical out of this. They sort of combined two different, two or three different short stories. Um, and in South Pacific, you have the two main couples that we've seen in the past, but kind of like Guys and Dolls, which we talked about last week, but actually came out after South Pacific. We just did it out of order because we got Todd. They yeah. just had to like, do that. <laughs> I mean, a real pleasure. Yeah. No um, problem to have. So there's two couples, but there's not, like, one main couple and one side couple. Each couple is dealing with issues of race and racism separately, but sort of intertwined. And each couple has a sort of different resolution Mm -hmm. to that issue. So that's basically how the musical got started. I guess at this point, we can just dive into it. Yeah, I mean, do we want to give sort of a brief summary of the plot? Uh, yeah. Yeah, okay, we'll give a summary of the plot. Kind of brief. So, so the, the, you start. <laughs> yeah, so the two main couples, um, there's one couple, Nellie Forbush, she is a young nurse in the um, in the military, uh-huh. so she's an American, and she meets this French plantation owner on the island, a white guy from France. Emile is his first name, his last name is... The back, right? The back, yeah. Yeah. And they fall in love, he's much older, he's sort of like in his, like, probably late 50s, I would guess. Oh, I would have said 
40s. Who 40s. Does? It depends yeah. on, I mean, it depends on the production. Depends on the casting. There's no, like, canonical age of him, so it really depends on just who in you cast. In the production I was in, I think he was about 17, so. <laughs> <laughs> Often he has gray hair. In in the, I think, yeah, in the movie version, the actor they found was going gray. And Nellie's, like, in her 20s. Mm-hmm. Um, played, Nellie was played by Mary Martin in the original production, and um, Emil was played by Elio, uh, sorry, Ezio or Ezio Pinza. Ezio Pinza, I don't know. Um, he was an opera singer, and she's, you know, a classic Broadway singer. Mary Martin, you're going to see her in a lot of upcoming episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the classic stars. One of the classic stars of uh, Broadway. And she, eventually she realizes that he was previously married to a native of the island, and he has two mixed-race children. Correct. And she, being from the American South, is... Not that everyone in the American mm-hmm. South is racist or anything, but she happens to be... She holds the opinions that were very prevalent at the time, and um, is really turned off by that. Yes. And she decides she can no longer be with him because he has mixed-race children who he loves. Simultaneously, basically like a young CG, so they call him, just... So he's not a CB. Uh, this guy, Lieutenant Joe Cable, is like from the military. He's there okay. to do a secret mission. Yes. So he's looking to recruit someone who has like a lot of familiarity with the island, which basically is Emil. He wants to recruit Emil to go on this like secret spy mission right. with him. Okay. So um, he's part of like a big group of like sort of the young, I don't know, soldiers there. Yes. Um, and he falls in love. With this girl, Liat. Right? Yes. Who um, is Tonkinese. Her mother, Bloody Mary, is um, sort of like friends with all the soldiers. She like... She, sings and sells She them sings things. and she like weaves yeah. them things yeah. and, and sells it to them. She's very friendly with all the CBs and they've taught her a lot of swear words. So they all love Bloody Mary. Right. And so Luther is sort of like a prominent fun... Yeah, there's like a fun comic relief character, Luther, who's one of the main CBs, and he has a lot of bands with Bloody Mary. Um. Uh, so Bloody Mary introduces uh, Lieutenant Joe Cable, and she refers to him as Lutellen. Yes. So for the rest of this podcast, I will only call him Lutellen. No, maybe not. Maybe not that. <laughs> I, know, I love that he's called Lutellen. That's I my mean, favorite. Yeah, but it's, I feel like it's being fun of her no, I, I, speech. I, is, is it? I like calling him Lutellen. Okay, well... The jury's out. Um, Whenever I'm... So I do a lot of, like, legal work and appellate work, and, you know, one of, like, the main works is appellant. So <laughs> whenever, like, I'm doing some sort of legal writing or reading where the word appellant appears, in my mind it's just appellant, like, lutellin. Oh, I see. That's cute So I'm for always you. thinking, like, appellant. That's cute for you. Okay. Okay, well, so that... Well, okay. Well, we'll finish this real quick, and then I'll get back to that. Um, but, yeah, so, like, we follow his relationship with Liat, and um, it's sort of the opposite perspective. Liat falls in love with him, and Bloody Mary's... Pushing no. it. Yeah. Well, she's pushing it, and then doesn't she make her leave him in the end? Well, because he decides that he can't really marry her, because he, right. he genuinely does love her, and unlike Nellie, who's just immediately scared off by, like, the racial situation, yeah. he sort of ideally wants to be with her, but he also thinks that his family in Philadelphia would never go for it. Philadelphia! So he decides that he can't be with her, and he goes off on the secret mission with Emil, mm-hmm. where, spoiler alert, uh, you skip, like, 30 seconds if you don't want to know. Uh, Lutellen dies and Emil lives. So Emil comes back and Nellie yeah. decides, you know, like when she was worried that he was dead, she realized how stupid and irrelevant prejudice is and decides to get over it and get over herself and be with him and be a stepmother to these two kids. And in the end, Lutellen never has to decide whether <laughs> whether or not to be with Liat. Or there's actually a, he had a girlfriend or fiance back home who he like totally forgets about until towards the end of the musical. It's like, Oh yeah, I did have a fiance back home, mm-hmm. and we never—he never ends up having to make that choice because he dies. Um, yeah, but uh, okay, so that's yeah. the—that's that's the, the sort plot. of the lay of the land of this musical. There's also like a lot of big fun musical numbers. Like there's a part where the 
army puts on like a fun musical essentially yeah they do like a variety show let's sort of go in chronological we haven't played any songs yet okay um so we're gonna start there's a lot of really big hit songs we're gonna start out um when nelly is still being very optimistic you might Mm -hmm. say about her relationship with emil she does not yet know that he has mixed race children Mm -hmm. um so here is her song a cockeyed optimist sung by mary martin this is a classic like almost every song in this entire musical is a classic the movie soundtrack of the movie version was a number one record in America for, um, it, it was the record at the time. I think it's the fourth of all albums ever released. It's in fourth place for the longest, uh, run at the top number one. I did so. not know that. So it was like an unbelievably huge hit, the movie soundtrack. We're playing the original Broadway soundtrack right, right. now though. Okay. So here's Cockeyed Optimus with Mary Martin. You can sort of hear that, like, King and I-ish orchestration. It's sort of the backing strings that really remind me of, like, Shall We Dance yeah. kind of K&I orchestration. Uh-huh. Uh, which, like, I mean, isn't, like, the most important thing, but, like, it's just whenever I hear that, I, I, it, yeah. I really, I, it just really speaks to me. I really like, I really like how the music sounds. Mm-hmm. Well, um, they're written back-to-back, yes. Were they? Are they? I, I mean, they're back-to-back Roger and Hammerstein shows. Like, yeah. um, I don't know, like, they literally wrote them back-to-back <laughs> no, in, I mean, in the way yeah. that, like, Peter Jackson <laughs> shot Lord of the Rings movies back-to-back. <laughs> I love, but yes, yes. I love that comparison. Yeah, they're back to back. Yeah, <laughs> essentially the same. Type um, of um, yeah, no, it's super lush and deep and um, beautiful. Yeah, so that was like a song. I just felt like we hadn't played a song yet. So mm-hmm. we no, it's play good. One. It's good. Okay, well, let's get into it. I mean, yeah, I don't know, South Pacific. Um, we, so should we just like talk about all the racial aspects now? <laughs> I mean, we probably should just get out of the way. Yeah, let's do that first, and then but we can no, appreciate that's a terrible way to phrase it. We're not not get it out of the way, but we should address it um, up front. Yeah. Also, just like, you know, Jeremy and I are two white people on this podcast, um, mm-hmm. and I just want to address that, like, a lot of our work on, or a lot of our discussion points on these early shows is us talk, trying to address the ways in which these shows are problematic. We're also two white people, um, and so we're still learning, and so we're not going to, uh, we hope to, to hit on everything, but um, we're still learning, and we're super aware of that, so we're not um, aware of everything, and we're trying to be in at the very least, we want to, like, recognize that these shows came from a place um, that is, you know, in a lot of ways, like, not okay today. Yeah. So, one thing... So, before we sort of talk about how South Pacific is received today, and we'll yeah. some quotes from various think pieces, the most important thing is how it was received then. Because mm. at the end of the day, like, the only people who care how South Pacific is received today are, like, this, this few... Relatively few people in America who are, like, going to go watch a production of South Pacific right. on Broadway or something. <laughs> But back then, this was, was the biggest hit. hit. Yeah. So much more important is how it was received then. And then I'd say it was more progressive than any show we've talked about sure. at all, mm-hmm. including show. But like, I don't know if we'll, we will ever talk about a show ever that was more progressive for its time. Because Hamilton's really progressive now, but like, so is a lot of America. Sure. <laughs> like, it had an, aud- a, an audience sort of waiting for it. Right. In a lot of ways, Hamilton, I feel like, was probably catching up yes. to um, 
a lot of other and friends. Sa- yeah. South Pacific was right, like, at was, the forefront. It was yeah. at the forefront. Bear in mind, this, this is a whole show. Like, Broadway was the main area of pop culture. Rock and roll was, like, starting. There was rock and roll. But, I mean, like, this was the stuff that was at the top of the charts. And in this time, Rodgers and Hammerstein, who were, like, probably the two most popular musicians and entertainers in America. Yeah. Interracial marriage was not legal in a lot of states in the United States at this mm-hmm. time. Interracial marriage wasn't going to be legalized um, across the nation, mm-hmm. I believe, uh, when the Supreme Court did in, in the Loving case. Um, it was actually called Loving v. Someone or Other. But, it was um, a really awesome name. But yeah, we talked about this in the Showboat <laughs> episode. I'm blanking right now. Yeah. Um, sorry, Theater Man 5. <laughs> I don't have all this information. Like, I feel accountable. <laughs> yeah. Um, Broadway Man. So, interracial marriage was illegal. So, when it was touring, the tour went to Atlanta, and it did get put up there, but there was controversy, and two Georgia state legislators, Senator John D. Shepard and Representative David C. Jones, objected to the song, You've Got to Be Carefully Taught, which we'll talk about soon, Mm. stating that although South Pacific is a fine piece of entertainment, that song, quote, contained an underlying philosophy inspired by Moscow and explained, quote, and this is a tough quote, so bear with us, intermarriage produces half-breeds. And half-breeds are not conducive to the higher type of society. In the South, we have pure bloodlines, and we intend to keep it that way. End quote. Yeah, so, like, very provocative at the time. And so I guess there's, like, sort of two ways of thinking about this musical, right? And, like, we're thinking about, you know, the way it was received at the time. It was hugely progressive. And it it really pissed off people. Because it wasn't, this wasn't like a, a good sign. I mean, I even in modern America, racism is not a fringe belief. No. But back then, like, thinking that interracial marriage is a moral evil was nothing at all fringe. It was very yeah. mainstream. And even the people who thought it should be legal probably weren't okay with it anyway. And the musical kind of addresses that really well with, um, Lutellen's parents, who, sorry, who, um, <laughs> who probably wouldn't hate the idea I mean, I, I don't know anything about. Yeah, but he parents. he has that concern. Right? He, he has that concern that when he brings her home, they're going to be upset. Right. Um. Even if like they might think it should be legal to marry a Tonkinese woman, they wouldn't yeah. actually want their son doing it. And even to this day, I mean, that's still yeah prevalent. So, I have never yeah. heard Tonkinese before. Is that a real thing? We might want to check on this. Or is that like well, a thing? I, I, so my guess is my guess is that's probably what Americans just referred to people from like the Gulf of Tonkin. So mm-hmm. I think Tonkinese is just what they're calling Vietnamese people. Vietnamese people. We should stop saying Tonkinese because it's possible it's it's an offensive term that we don't know. Well, so this is like gets into the other thing, right? So we have this musical that's super progressive at the time that is essentially like arguing that interracial marriage is something that um, is should be legal and um, should be okay and that prejudice against it is wrong. However, like, so this is a show that gets produced all the time. Um, Mm -hmm. It was recently produced in Philadelphia. um, And um, a lot of actors who were not Asian were playing Asian roles. And that's, like, what's tricky with this show. That's what's tricky with King and I, which we'll get to. And so you have the show that's, like, making progress in one direction. But the way it's been cast historically has been um, really unacceptable. So, like, there's a history of Yellowface attached to the production. And then there's also... And not on Rodgers and Hammerstein's part, we sure. should name. Like, this is, like, yeah. a more sort of recent thing. Rodgers and Hammerstein were very good about... No, I mean, not perfect. Obviously, sure. they did cast white people's Asian... Uh, in Asian roles. We're going to talk about Yul Brenner playing the king in yeah. our next episode about ah! the king. And I. So I don't want to say Rodgers and Hammerstein have, like, a clear bill of health here. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah. Um, anyway, sorry. I no, yeah. That. I mean, um, I don't know. I mean, that's... So that that's what's tricky about it. And also, you know, like, what's tricky with a character like Bloody Mary... And, like, quote-unquote, like, you know, her saying Lou Tellen is, like, 
you know, she's a really awesome, fun character. I would argue she has the best songs in the show, and we'll get to that. Valley High is, like, my favorite song mm-hmm. in the show. Um, but there's a way to do it where you're, like, perpetuating um, stereotypes, essentially, about Asian people. And so what's tricky about... I think that's what's tricky about the show. Yeah, is, yeah. No, for sure. Yeah. Um, there was a recent revival at the Lincoln Center, which mm-hmm. was really well-received. Mm-hmm. Um, Lincoln Center also did King and I, like, right after that, and that was also really well-received. Well yeah. And general critical consensus was they sort of did a really good job of not having it be racist at all. Mm-hmm. Um, well, so to that end, sorry, I dropped you. Um, and the thing is, both of them still did get some criticism of sort sure. of the Orientalism. Yeah. Um, like, I, there was some criticism in the Huffington Post about, um, that I was reading about how the South Pacific inherently, when Lieutenant Cable it falls in love with Liat. It's sort of like Bloody Mary presents Liat to him. Yeah. And she, like, willingly accepts him into bed. So it's not like it's a rape or anything, but just the idea that Asian women are more submissive. Right, and, and, and like her exotic beauty being yeah, like sort of fetishized. Yeah, Orientalism, exoticism, sort of... It's it's not something that we would want in a new show. Right. I think... And it's, it's tricky, I mean, just that end though, because it's like, there is the... You know, it's true that that was like a cultural stereotype that was happening, right? So like, you know, is it completely unacceptable to, acceptable to present it in a, in a historical context? Yeah. You know, I don't and, know. And it's yeah. interesting also because when this was done, it's not like this is just like a made up story. Like, let's just, let's just do a show about yeah. um, the Pacific Islands for no reason. Like America was just at war with the Pacific Islands. I guess, Islands. yeah, what I mean is like, and this yeah, was really happening. Yeah, like, like yeah. people in the audience had been to the war and like half of the Americans at war, if not more than half, were in the Pacific theater. Yeah. And they actually, you suddenly had all these people from Arkansas and all these places yeah. like Nellie Forbush, the, the nurse character, who'd never seen a non-white person in their life. I mean, America's filled with non-white people, but some of these people in the military right. never met a non-white person in their life. Suddenly, they're on a Pacific island. I mean, there's like the native Vanuatuans who don't even really appear in this. Then there's also the Vietnamese people who sort of moved because France colonized, uh, like, French Indochina, they called it, which is Vietnam now. So that's where, like, a meal would have come from with all right. these Vietnamese people on the plantations on Vanuatu. So, like, this, <laughs> this huge racial mixture of people who these white people would never dealt with. And it was a huge sort of turning point for American cultural consciousness like right. oh wait like i never had to think about race before it just wasn't part of my life now well, suddenly I mean, i'm well, forced america had to think about race sorry oh yeah no, <laughs> no, 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 no. Okay. no what i mean is like ne- way, what yeah. i mean is now ne- the character of nelly forbush in particular yeah. she personally growing up in some all-white town yeah. where she had never met a black person before right. does not have to think about race right um now suddenly she has to think about race Correct. every yeah. day and it's it was this huge shock to the american cultural consciousness mm-hmm. and this important moment in American history where su- where people are suddenly forced to deal with race in a way they never have before is worth writing about. And the Americans at that time probably dealt with this new like racial consciousness really poorly. Right. And this show is basically about how they poorly dealt with it. And right. yes, it's written by two white men, Rogers and Hammerstein, who were also dealing with it poorly. But that's part of what makes the show so special is that you have all these people forced into this new world trying yeah. to deal with it. And Roger and Hammerstein, I think, by making the show and saying, like, hey, we should all be less prejudiced. Right. Is sort of, and showing this across America, having a tour in Atlanta, yeah. I think that's the best possible way you could right. do this. I think, yeah, I think you're right that it definitely encouraged people to have that conversation, which is ultimately, like, hopefully, like, what all theater can be about, you know. Um, well, that was very broad and, like, a neat little bow to tie that up in. Yeah. But, yeah, so, I mean... Great. So and, just... and if you don't want to put up uh, South Pacific in your theater because you think it's a little... 
you know, uncomfortable. Like, that's fine. It's yeah. not like I think people should be required to do it or anything. No. But I don't think this is a show like um, Anything Goes or uh, Showboat, where it's right. like, while it was good for its time, well, Anything Goes wasn't good for its yeah. time. <laughs> Showboat was good for its time, but I don't know if I would recommend doing it. It's just, yeah, only, it's no. a big can of worms. So you might get in trouble and, like, yeah. it's, it's, it might make a lot of people upset. People will get offended, rightfully so. They, like, should be getting offended by it. Yeah. This show, like, if someone put it up, it'd be like, yeah, cool. Like, like I'm glad they're doing it. I think there's a way to do it. But, I think that's the point, right? Yeah, but, yeah, yeah it, it's it's interesting. I mean, um, I don't know. Like, I think, so what's interesting, um, Bart Schur, um, who's an incredible director, he just, um, he directed Oslo, that just uh, won a bunch of Tonys. He directed both the revival of South Pacific, and I'm pretty sure he also directed the revival of um, King and I at Lincoln Center. Mm-hmm. Um, he's an incredible director. Like, please check out his work. Um I got to meet him recently. He was teaching a um, directing workshop in Philadelphia, um, and I was one of the actors who got to be in the workshop, which is pretty cool because it was sort of the best case scenario because I got to essentially get directed by Bart Scher without, um, I wasn't under scrutiny because it was really a workshop for the directors, um, so I was safe. But um, he talked a little bit about South Pacific, and he talked about his process and, um, I don't know, the types of stories he tries to tell, and he said when he was doing South Pacific... You made me think of it when you said when it was first produced, um, the interracial marriage case was essentially a year away in the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. He said, well, he was doing South Pacific. Um, it had either just passed or it passed while he was working on it. Um, gay marriage became legal across America. And he said for him, he made he his connection to the show was um, it was about answering the question of who's allowed to be in your family, like who, who's allowed to be part of a family. Um, and so for him, like what resonated was the like the gay marriage statutes passing, mm-hmm. which I think is really an interesting, I don't know, an interesting way in. And I don't know. It's interesting. I feel like it really reflects the historical context that you were talking about in a totally different way. But. Yeah. And I'm, I'm reading some criticism from the New York times of the 2008 Lincoln center production. Um, they sort of originally when the show would put up the original script had Nellie a little bit less likable. Um, and they sort of restore, but then by the time it got to Broadway, they toned that down in the 2008 version uh, restored some of the uncomfortability. And mm-hmm. so uh, Frank Rich of the New York Times commented um, about the Lincoln Center production. Uh, so basically, there's one point where Emil's talking about his first wife, and she's mm-hmm. unable to force out a word to describe the wife. And he supplies Polynesian, and then she says colored. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, like various other things like that. Like she's much more clearly a racist, not just uncomfortable. Like she's actively a racist more so. And uh, Frank Rich of the New York Times commented, it's upsetting because Nellie isn't some cracker stereotype. She's lovable. But how can we love a racist? Right. And I think that's a really important touch to the 2008 thing that we sort of haven't touched on. Mm-hmm. One big thing we're dealing with right now in 2017, we're recording this in 2017, yeah. it's about to be 2018, ah, is that yeah. sort of a lot of people are realizing you have relatives <laughs> who are like racist. Happy Thanksgiving! And, <laughs> and, and what, do you, what do you do about that? Um, yeah. it's, it's something we're all sort of grappling with right now right and this 2008 production looking at the show is kind of like it makes you realize that you start the show liking nelly you don't realize she's a racist just like how you often don't realize a lot of your friends or family members are racist until you're older um and then suddenly you're you're faced with this decision is it possible to love this person yeah even knowing that they have these terrible ideas and south pacific sort of makes an easy decision by nelly realizes that she's Mm -hmm. stupid and like gets over it yeah um well okay that's an interesting it's interesting. I'm thinking about, like, the way the audience sort of relates to her and, like, the ways in which the show is both, like, through her eyes but also not. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, I, you know, the show is written by two white people. So if there's any protagonist of the whole thing, I would say it's actually Emile, the French planter. I think that's an interesting perspective because I do think, like, you know, we have washed that man right out of my hair, which maybe we'll get to. We'll get. We'll do some more songs soon. Um, mm, very soon. We have a lot of songs from Nelly's perspective, but I'd argue they're mostly in the like first part of the show. Yeah. And then we also get a lot of Emile's perspective, and we spend a lot of time with him and uh, Lieutenant Gable, um, and. We also have, I would argue, some of the play from Bloody Mary's perspective. Yeah, there's um, a lot, there's no one protagonist. I was, I, yeah, I, I, I take back saying <laughs> that Emil was the protagonist. It's really an amazing ensemble cast. Even yeah. even the funny guy Luther Bills is, right. is like has his moment. In the sort fun. of as important as everyone else, even though he has nothing to do with like all the love plots. He's always there, like right. having like harebrained schemes. The movie builds him up even more and has yeah. him do like a weird skydiving like, <laughs> raft shootout oh God, I situation. I forgot about that. It's so pointless. Uh. <laughs> well, okay. So anyway, like I think that speaks to the point though is there's like a multiplicity of perspective essentially. Yeah, you and really, if you haven't seen the movie, really you should watch it. <laughs> there's like a lot of problems. We're going to talk about that very shortly. Yeah. Um, I guess should we just start talking about the show itself? Yeah, this, and this let's, let's, let's play some more music. Okay, so we're going to start playing some music. <laughs> um, eventually we'll cycle back to the race topic when we get to the big song, You've Got to Be Carefully Taught. Yeah. I do want to sort of save that for later to play it after we've played a lot of the other songs yeah, so you can right. see how weird it is and how it sticks out. Okay. Um, so there's a ton of beautiful things. I'm going to play Some Enchanted Evening, which is like somehow the one song from this show that I didn't know. Even what? Though, even though it was the biggest hit Some from the show at the time. Enchanted Evening. That's Here my favorite song. It's beautiful, yeah. You can tell he's such an opera singer. Wait, was this guy an opera singer too? No. Yeah. Yes, okay. Okay, that song is really beautiful. Yeah, I don't really have anything to say about it other than, like, there, that, there you go. That was, like, the hit of the show, like, yeah. the big love song standard. Really, really great. Yeah, um, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Um, Mary Martin was actually nervous about being in this show because she had to be opposite an opera singer. Mm-hmm. Even though she's a great Broadway singer, mm-hmm. she doesn't have that sort of, like, operatic voice, so she was nervous about it. Interesting. And they managed to convince her that it would be okay. Um, they actually played her, a, I think, a bit of this next song that I'll play, uh, Twin Soliloquies, which is, like, each of them thinking to themselves about the other person and she's sort of singing in Mary Martin style and he's sort of singing in Ezio Pinza style. Mm-hmm. Um but like it manages to work even though his voice is more like technically better than hers. Yeah, a different I mean it's it's interesting though because she you know I mean he's not American and I think like her her style of song and her, yes. her voice is like quote unquote very American. And she re- it, it, it sort of yeah. makes more sense like he's French, she's old world, she's Arkansas, she's New World. Mm-hmm. Smiling, lining up my heel. 
Yeah, by sort of keeping it simple that way, yeah. he could still put his sort of opera vibrato on it and put his opera voice, but because the melody was so simple, she could also sing it in a Broadway style that, like, it works. Like, mm-hmm. it really works for the kid. You, you, I love shows that don't just, like, write a good role and then just, like, especially back then, they would just, like, find some stiff ham like Howard Keel <laughs> and just, like, put him in every role. Whereas this show, and Rodgers and Hammerstein never succumbed to, like, the Howard Keel I love, that's why you really like um, they would they would cast to the role and I think they did this less so in Oklahoma mm-hmm. where like they would sort of cast like keel-esque type guys just like the deep like the baritone like I'm a manly man yeah but especially starting with this show they really cast the roles to the characters mm-hmm. which I loved King and I is very similar in that regard I mean we'll talk about that next yeah. week aka like me and Hannah we'll talk about that in half an hour great but let's, let's, let's keep moving <laughs> we do let's okay I would love to hit um I would love to hear Bloody Mary. Bloody Mary. Here. I love that. I, I, yeah. love when, I love when all those CDs sing together. Yeah. I mean, the next one is There's Nothing Like a Dame, which I heard the song There's Nothing Like a Dame. I never thought that was a Rodgers and Hammerstein song. In my mind, because I'd never seen Guys and Dolls either, I was just like, oh yeah, it's probably a Guys and Dolls song. Yeah. Because it seems like a song that's called There's Nothing Like a Dame right. sounds like it would be from Guys and Dolls. It does sound like it would be from Guys and Dolls. You're not wrong. Uh, but it's, it's like, it's like it's decently respectful, I would... That was the one. We got sunlight on the sand, we got moonlight on the sea, we got mangoes and bananas you can pick right off the tree. We got volleyball and It sounds like some damn Yankees or something. What ain't we got? We got things. We get packages from home, we get movies, we get shows, we get speeches from our skipper, and advice from Tokyo Rose. We get letters doused with point view, we get points from the smell. problem as the show as we start liking the shows more we're gonna sing along yeah. with him and bother i don't i don't feel bad about it no i don't feel bad about it either like i'm not tempted i'm not tempted to sing along <laughs> with like what, what anything was, else i'll say our town on the town i'm on not tempted town. to sing along no. with that okay let's just continue this music okay let's just, yeah let's just keep the tour going let's let's sorry we like sorry we front loaded the talk and are end loading the music but whatever it's yeah I, I don't feel bad about it um here's bali high okay so here's a tip for bali high um Pay attention to this and think in your head of it's the last midnight from Into the Woods. Because when I heard this, I was like, I like it's the last midnight. It's oh, the that's wild! So, you ruined yeah. the song for me now. Okay. Oh, so this is Juanita Hall, who's actually black, um, but like. Not so, not the same as <laughs> like, like she's not actually Asian, but it's better than a white actor. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that we here we go. Last time, midnight, but... listen. Oh, 
Okay, I think that was enough. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I love that song. It's beautiful. So that, I mean, that song is one of the songs that gets sort of uh, criticism for, like, Orientalism and, like, yeah. the British, like, had, like, the sort of Shangri-La magic island concept. Like, ooh, like, Westerner, go to this magic island yeah. and, like, yeah. magical things will happen and, like, a young submissive girl will, like, give herself to you. I mean, but as, as much as that's, like, not true, that is probably kind of how a lot of these guys in the military thought. Right. And this is sort of an accurate depiction of, like, yeah, the I mean, she's playing, felt. Right, and it's, I mean, the character's essentially playing into that stereotype. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's a beautiful song. I also think that uh, there's a really valid criticism of it. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but it does get stuck in my head because it, you're not, oh, God, I can't believe it sounds like it's the last minute. Um, I have a fun, before we continue going, I actually have a fun anecdote I just remembered. Um, so Stephen Sondheim, um, we haven't talked that much about him yet. He's gonna, we'll get there. He's gonna be the star of this podcast before too long. Mm-hmm. He was mentored by Oscar Hammerstein II. Um, like, that's very interesting. Yeah, he was basically his protege. Uh, Sondheim met him around the age of 10 because he was friends with Oscar's son, James. And, um, Hammerstein sort of was like his surrogate father, they've often said, I didn't um, know any of this. This is fascinating. Yeah, oh, I'm, I'm this surprised. This is good. This is good. Yeah, Jeremy so Sondheim, like, really learned at Hammerstein's knee. And, I mean, Sondheim is probably the greatest lyricist of all time. Like, when you're talking about the greatest lyricist of all time, traditionally the two names have been Hammerstein and Sondheim. Now you can say Lin-Manuel your last Miranda. Name, Stein, unless or you're unless you're Lin-Manuel Miranda. <laughs> no. um, who, like, I think I think is actually at that level in terms of just agree. lyrical ability. I would it, agree. The one difference is his, his uh, he doesn't have, like, enough musicals yet. Yeah, he's um, getting there though. He, but he's getting there. He's like, getting there. I, I think his I think his talent level is at that level. He's just not like he hasn't. He, has not, he doesn't have the yet. body of work yet, but he will have that body of work. Anyway, so like if we're talking the best lyricists, these are the people, and they sort of each have learned from each other because also the Manuel Miranda, when West Side Story was revived, mm-hmm. um, they changed a lot of the lyrics that the Puerto Rican characters were singing. They changed the English lyrics to Spanish lyrics, and Lin Manuel wrote mm-hmm. the Spanish lyrics mm-hmm. working with Sondheim. So it's kind of interesting that, like, the three best lyricists of all time who, who like, Hammerstein started writing hits in, like, the 1910s, right. Lin-Manuel was writing in the 2010s, yeah. and yet the three of them are, like, all, all like, connected. connected, met each other personally, and helped mentor each other. It's very That's interesting. That's very beautiful. Um, so anyway, so the, um, why I bring up South Pacific, um, Sondheim had been learning from Hammerstein for a long time, even before South Pacific, mm-hmm. but an interesting meeting happened at um, South Pacific. Um, Sondheim, who was already, you know, a big fan, uh, decided to go see South Pacific live. Uh, he was at the opening night and at the opening night of South Pacific, he met a certain youngster, a certain youngster who, um, was currently enrolled at college at the University of Pennsylvania and decided to go on a trip to go see South Pacific. And, uh, yes, dear listener, we were talking about Hal Prince, uh, the winningest Tony person of all time director and producer of a million shows you love and have heard of, including many of Sondheim's first ones. Um, and at this point, Hal Prince was the treasurer of the Pennsylvania Players, which is <laughs> which, uh, uh, my cause theory group. <laughs> yep, um, Jeremy was chair for a number of years, and he's seeing um, their production of Spring Awakening this evening. Yeah, so. that's, that's why I'm in Philly, to see the Penn Players production of <laughs> Spring Awakening. Everything is connected. Um, so, yeah, so Hal Prince and Stephen Sondheim met each other at the opening night of South Pacific. So, Way to work that in, Jeremy. So this musical isn't just important for its, like, role in Broadway history, like, as an actual show. It's also important as the meeting ground for the best collaborative team in Broadway history, mm-hmm. who 
fundamentally changed Broadway on the same level that Rodgers and Hammerstein did almost. Maybe not quite as much, but like nearly at that level. That's interesting, though. I did not know that. Um, okay. All so. right. All right. Nice. Good little aside. I'm going to watch that memory out of my hair. All right. going to watch that memory out of my hair. Oh, so this is actually Mary Martin's idea. She decided she wanted to wash her hair on stage. I'm going to wash that man right And they wrote the song for her. I love how she says, like, send him on. Yeah. <laughs> a little, a little trail. Hot take, um, um, she doesn't succeed. Not hot take. Um, what do you mean? Spoiler alert. No, in, in washing him out of her hair. Oh, I thought you meant with her little vocal No, her vocal work, work is, uh, no, that's not a hot take. That that's not a hot take. No. We, we got criticized by Broadway Man 5 for having too many quote-unquote takes. Takes? Oh, I won't back down. <laughs> me, me neither. We, we should probably stop using the word take where should it we? doesn't apply. Should no, I mean, I, I think you sometimes use it in instances where it doesn't apply. Mm, I, mean, I, I don't think we should stop giving hot takes. I think we should only use the word take when we're actually giving a when hot take. When we're actually take. referring to a take that is hot. Yeah. yeah. All right, fine. Well, um, spoiler alert, um, she does not succeed. In washing out of her hair, in, yeah. But she does succeed brilliantly. But she song. does, in on the stage version, she actually showered her hair, mm-hmm. um, like washed it, which is a really cool effect. Even now, it's like, I'm always impressed when water is mm-hmm. done in plays. <laughs> Even though it's been, it's been being done for like a hundred years, I'm still impressed. I'm like, oh my God, like someone's like There's doing a lot of water on yeah. stage. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um... Okay, I mean, we can't just play every song. No, we can't right? play everything. Um... Oh, now, okay, so now, now is the appropriate time to talk about the ills of the movie version. Okay. So there's two main issues with the movie version. First of all, for some reason, they decided to color tint it all ridiculously. Yeah. And if you watch this, you'll see it. Like, a lot of color tinting happens in movies. Watch mm-hmm. any movie made by Warner Brothers in the past 10 years, like Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, or the yeah. entire DC cinematic universe. Mm-hmm. They make everything gray. Watch any movie or TV show that takes place in the Middle East or Mexico. They tint it yellow or orange. Yeah. Like, the tinting, I hate. It's one of my least favorite things. But I've never seen tinting as bad as South Pacific. The director kind of asked for some light tints. And then I believe MGM was the studio. They sort of took it too far and, like, aggressively tinted everything. Yeah. So certain scenes are just, like, straight up blue. And, like, by the time he saw it, it was like, this is terrible. Like, it was sort of too late. So you can't really blame the director. It was sort of a miscommunication. But even, despite the tinting, it was still a huge hit. Mm-hmm. The other issue is that the dubbing in the South Pacific movie <laughs> is the worst dubbing that has ever happened in a motion picture in the history of the world. That's a hot take. <laughs> I don't know. I actually don't think that's a hot you take. You don't think it's a hot take? I don't, because I think like anyone who watches this would agree. All right, well, why so don't you demonstrate play, your point? So, so Lieutenant Cable, a.k.a. Lutellen, has like... Like, I like that he's not, the actor, he's not, like, a super, like, buff, muscly leading man. He, like, he's, he's, kind of has, like, a high, reedy, nasally voice. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly he sings for the first time, and you're like, whoa. Okay, so I'm going to play some of his talking, and then it's going to go into a song younger than Springtime, and you will <laughs> see the distinction. So here we go. What's going on, Mary? What? You're just a kid. How did an innocent kid like you get mixed up with Bloody Mary? Okay, so listen to his voice there, yeah. Very high. Set vie femme. Votre ami? Ma mère. Your mother? Bloody Mary really is your mother. That's why she's been looking me over like that. Alright, here we go. It's the boat, all right. I'll let him wait. I touch your hand and my arms grow strong. Yeah, that's pretty bad. I'm a pair of birds that burst with song. 
It's unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, that was not a, a good transition. I forgot how quickly it goes from his voice and singing. <laughs> this guy's almost like a different accent. Yeah. Sounds like Matt Monroe who sang <laughs> um, from Russia with Love. But it's not, I check. Yeah. We're having Wi Fi issues. We'll hear Okay, so we'll just swap to the here, song. Okay, here it goes. This is the chorus. Okay, so we got in the we got in the point. Okay, great. All right, well we made our point, which is that the dubbing is terrible. Yeah, I I do like that song. Yeah, um, it is beautiful. It's a very beautiful song. Mm-hmm. Um, so okay, do we, do we want to do happy talk? No, let's no, okay. okay. So they've got they've got a feel. Um, let's let's skip. To, let's you gotta be carefully taught. It's time. Right. Let's do that. And then so okay. So this song, in terms of just the lyrics, um, I'm gonna look up the lyrics of "You've Got to Be Carefully Taught," uh-huh. and I'll read them to you so that you can sort of see what the message of the song is. And this is basically Nelly has run away from Emil because she's worried about his kids, right. and Emil asks Lutellen, uh, why. Why is she doing this? Like, why are you Americans like this? Mm-hmm. Um, and basically, he tells her, this is um, uh, this is his take on, you know, like, how racism spreads. And it's sort of like a message song from Rogers. And this is the song that caused so much controversy in, Al- in Atlanta and Georgia and all those places. Um, these are the lyrics. You've got to be taught to hate and fear. You've got to be taught from year to year. It's got to be drummed in your dear little ear. You've got to be carefully taught. You've got to be taught to be afraid of people whose eyes are oddly made and people whose skin is a different shade. You've got to be carefully taught. You've got to be taught before it's too late, before you are six or seven or eight, to hate all the people your relatives hate. You've got to be carefully taught. Basically saying, like, people inherently are not prejudiced and it's... It's taught. It's taught. Mm -hmm. Um, Which isn't, like... I've seen criticisms of that more recently. sort of ignores, like, structural racism and, like, how racism can pass on like without just like without people actively teaching yeah, that's a good but, critique, but but it's a good critique but at the time you know it's a good idea like hey the default position of humans is not to hate each other mm-hmm. if people hate each other it's probably because like we're teaching them to and just stop doing that please mm-hmm. uh very good message the one issue with it is i i personally feel and you can decide for yourself that the weird melody like <laughs> so, sort of like sounds like let's play it <laughs> Jaunty. It's got to be drummed in your dear little ear. You've got to be carefully taught. <laughs> yeah, it is like the most Oklahoma of anything yeah. in. Which makes sense, actually, if you think about it. Um, I think they were worried. I think they really wanted to write this song, and they were worried that if it was too heavy, like, people yeah. really would be, like, too upset by it and wouldn't be able to take in the message because they'd be too, like, angry at it. Yeah, I agree with that. So instead, they, so they sort of, 
I think this is probably the one weird and maybe bad move they made because it's simultaneously the music sort of is like counterproductive to the message and it's also not like a fun song to sing either. So it's just kind of like no one's ever going to hum this song (laughs) or just like sing it for fun and it also sort of is counterproductive to the message. I think it's great. I think people did get the message. Right. Um, like, even though it's a weird jaunty tune, it's just so weird that it's a jaunty yeah, tune. Yeah, I feel like I've heard it orchestrated differently or just played faster, maybe. I think, but maybe I'm just thinking of my high school production. Um, anyway, um, one, one tiny little, let's play a little bit of This Nearly Was Mine because that's like also like a good song. Mm-hmm. This is after, uh, um, Emil thinks that Nelly has left him forever, so he sings this very pretty song. Yeah. But then eventually she comes back after he's done like being a successful spy. My dad sang that song oh. for like our synagogue's like fundraising That's benefit. Really cute, Jeremy. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, I mean, okay. Well, let's talk about Emil a little bit. Like, I don't know. Um, I guess so. He just forgives her racism in the end. Is that is that the? Yeah, the because, I mean, he's so tolerant. He's not only tolerant of people of all races. He's also tolerant of the circumstances of her upbringing. Yeah. Probably be- in part because of you've got to be carefully taught. Sung to him by Lieutenant, aka Lieutenant. Um. <laughs> Is that is that a problem? Should I stop saying that? I don't know. That? I mean, to be, I mean, probably yes. But is this the worst thing I've done on Broadway? Been it might be talent a lot. I don't know. I also think hopefully it's self aware enough that um, it's acceptable. I'm yeah. not. The jury's out. Yeah, <laughs> the jury's out. I just like talent. <laughs> I mean, I heard. Yeah. Um. So anyway, so, so I, I think he he takes it because he's like, why is she not? What is her problem? Right. And Cable is like. She was taught to hate by her parents. This yeah. is like the circumstance of her upbringings. It's literally never been challenged because she's never met a person of color. Right. So she's never had to confront this. So I think Emil being uh, so tolerant, it's like, I understand that the, the reason she felt this way. And I'm willing to give her room to change. Well, so, okay. And let's talk a little bit about like what that change is, right? Like, doesn't she sort of, she has a moment, Nellie has a moment with Liat when Liat finds out that um, like the lieutenant has died. Right? Mm-hmm. Yes. And so, like, she's also sort of sees that and essentially, like, becomes better friends with some of the natives yeah. in that way. And so, sort of starts to get socialized um, yeah. and realizes her own prejudices. And while Emil's gone, she takes care of his kids. Mm-hmm. It's sort of oh, an yeah. important thing. And so, when he comes home, like, I'm pretty sure she's serving them dinner. And so, the scene is like, he comes home to dinner and she's with the children. The children singing Dite Moi. Yeah. And then he just, he joins, they're singing Dite Moi and he just joins in. Yeah. And it's sort of, um, like, it's, it reminds me a lot, you're talking about how the new version, uh, the director was sort of thinking about gay marriage, and this reminds yeah. me a lot of that as well. A lot of, I mean, gay marriage, popular opinion polls in America were against gay marriage, over 50% were against, and then very quickly over just a couple years switched to being for, and yeah. part of it was just representation, you know, on TV, right. and then people sort of coming out in their life, and mm-hmm. very often you suddenly have a gay family member, so before when there was just this other, now suddenly it's like, oh, gay people aren't this, like, mysterious other it's my nephew Steve, right. yeah. <laughs> who I've met his hus- I've met his boyfriend yeah. or partner, and they're both really great people. And like, sort of just exposure. It's it's much easier to trick people into hating something they've never experienced. Exactly. And then once you've all experienced it, it's hard. You can still try to make people hate, but it, it's it's much more difficult. 
Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, too. Like, I think when I saw the show when I was little or participated in it, I didn't really get the ending. And I do think, like, there's not a lot of language in the end. Like, they, there's not, like, written into the show, like, they have a passionate kiss and she asks her to marry her and it all works out. It's just, like, this scene is them having a meal together and you know... The suggestion is, is that it's, it's going to work out. And in some ways it reminds me of the end. This is a weird comparison. But it reminds me of the end of My Fair Lady. Um, you know where, like, they sort of reconcile? But yeah, but it, do- it doesn't... Yeah. It feels out of place because the original play didn't have the reconciliation, so they sort of just toss it in, mm-hmm. I think. So that's interesting. We'll yeah. talk about that later. But we'll get yeah. to that. But anyway, yeah, it's sort of like, you know, for a show that's, like, very... Um, in terms of, like, um, I don't know, the way the musical numbers work, sort of nuts and bolts, like, this ending moment, I was always struck by feeling... I don't know, a little more, like, abstract, a little more, um, I don't know, not ethereal, but, like, you know, it's not, there's not language given to this moment. It's really more just about, like, the event of the yeah. and Nelly coming home to it, which I always really liked. I think it's, like, um, really good storytelling. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So, anyway. All right, we should probably get let's down to this ranking. This yeah, let's rank this thing. Yeah, okay. this is this is probably our longest episode yet. Well, okay, can we listen to this in the 12 minutes of yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. speaking? Um, and we also, like, ranted about, like, one bad interview. <laughs> yeah. Okay, um, so in terms of was this good, I... You know, first we're doing was it important. Um, and usually it's was this important to Broadway, but I'm also thinking, like, was this important to, like, America? So yeah. that's, that's sort of along the line. So I'll, I'll, let me think of a score. Okay, I think I've got one. Okay, what's yours? 8.5. Okay, I'm going to give it a... I'm going to give it a 9? That's appropriate. I probably underdid it. I probably should have gone higher. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it was... I really appreciated what you were saying about... Um, backlash against it um and the idea that this was performed all over america um and was literally happening um yeah. just before interracial marriage became legal so. yeah i probably would have given it like a seven because rogers and hammerstein's formula had already been done this is right if, if this deserves points for advancing the formula it's that there wasn't like a main couple and then a comic relief couple it was sort of mm. two equal couples mm-hmm. which we did see last week in guys and dolls bear in mind guys and dolls came out after this sure um so this well, broke ground there it is interesting but then there's though, also the american thing right it yeah. is interesting to see that like sort of over our past couple episodes, right? Like, this formula starts to get perfected, and then it starts to get, um, I don't know, they start to hold the mirror up to society, and that's kind of cool to see that progress happening. Yeah. Um, anyway. I probably underdid it, but I'm not going to no, change. we don't change. You don't change. <laughs> we don't change. Okay, so now we're talking, was it good? Um, mm-hmm. Compared, do, how good do we think it was compared to the musicals that had come out before it? I'm going to give it a score. I'm going to give it, like, an... I'm going to give it like a nine or nine and a half. What are you giving it? Which which of those two? You have to decide for it. I already know what I'm doing. Nine and a half. Okay, I'm giving it a ten. Okay, great. Okay. Af- after Todd uh, strolled in and, <laughs> and uh, t- tied our number one score, I'm, I'm ready to... We're ready to come in. <laughs> knock that back out. All right. Um, you going to wash that Todd right out of your hair. I can't uh, I'm going to wash that no, Todd. That's no, wait, no, that's really bad. No, that's okay. terrifying. Oh, Why did God, I do that? I'm, I'm so sorry. That. Why did I bring this um, here? Okay. Um, oh, we have a Todd-related song to play. Okay. Oh, we'll get that. We'll end with that. We'll end with that. Um, okay. <laughs> Todd will forever haunt the rest of the Okay, Broadway now <laughs> is it good compared to every show that's ever come out? If it was put up today on Broadway. Mm-hmm. You want me to go first? Yes. 7.5. I was going to give it a 7.5. Wow. Great. Okay. Guys, I think we're going to have a new winner. Is that true? I don't know. Let's quickly add. Okay, everyone. I just did the math. My scores total up to 26. Hannah's scores total up to 26. That makes for a grand total of 52, which is now the first place musical. What? Beating Oklahoma and Guys and Dolls, which were tied in first previously at 51. This beats them by one point. Huge day. Big so day. Big South day Pacific. Robert is the biggest is the best musical of the eleven we've talked about so far. This is definitive. Definitive. 
Um, Great. So, um, now that we have that out of the way, um, the real business of this podcast. Um, uh, we spoke last week uh, with Todd about um, a song called Now is the Time. Yes, um, which he said it didn't have great lyrics because they were probably just temporary lyrics. There was a re- It was going to be an act one after a meal told... Oh, so the reason he left France to come here is because he like killed a guy in his town. It's like a boring... Oh, it's like- it's like a boring plot it's element, so we didn't even yeah. talk about it. Okay. So first he sings this song, and then he reprises it later on with Lieutenant Cable to talk about why they're going to go off on their secret spy mission. Um, he says, like, now is the time. So it's like a rousing call <laughs> to action. It's just totally unnecessary and just slows down Act 2. Right. So it makes sense they cut it. And just for those who are new to the podcast today, Todd uh, sang this song. It was um, in essentially Cinderella. put into Cinderella. It was bastardized and yes. placed in Cinderella. In- for, the, for the brand new character, uh, the revolutionary Jean-Michel, Jean everyone's Michel. favorite Cinderella. So this is not Todd Bonaparte singing. This was the original, uh, the originator of the role of Jean-Michel mm-hmm. um, singing... Um, the prince is giving a ball slash now is the time. So here you go. <laughs> oh, Pinkleton, I want you to tell this to all. His royal highness. This is not it yet. I thought it was earlier. Now is the time, the time to act. No other time will do. <laughs> no. Live and play your part. Don't give away your heart. Don't take what the world gives you. Now is the time, the time to live. No other time is needed. This is the worst Rodgers and Hammerstein song. <laughs> I agree with that. This is like what? Today you can see and feel. This is like someone this year majoring in musical theater, trying to write a fake Rodgers and Hammerstein song. Time of your life is today. You heard it here first. That was really bad. Okay. Uh, <laughs> All right. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Um, I'll read us out. Great. And be sure to subscribe to Broadway Binge on any podcast app so that you'll be able to get each episode as soon as it comes out. You can also find our episodes along with links and pictures on our website, broadwaybinge.podbean.com. You can check us out on Twitter at Broadway underscore binge, where you can join the conversation and leave us a tweet, which we might read on the air. Also, Hannah just made a new Instagram account. It's just called Broadway Binge. There's no underscore. It's Broadway Binge. It's on Instagram. It's great. Woo! Um, Hannah's really good at Instagram. Hannah loves Instagram. Like, for her personal life and for her, like, <laughs> her theater company movement oh, thing yes. that she's in charge of. My also, theater company movement It's thing. called the Greenfield Collective. <laughs> Look it up. That also has an Instagram. It's excellent. Wow. So. Jeremy, I really, I'm really touched. Um, I love to share my life. All right. Well, we'll see you guys next week for The King and I. Bye. Bye.